0: section ten of a history of the four georges in four volumes volume one by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eight after the rebellion all this time the jacobite demonstrations were still going on in london and in various parts of england with as much energy as ever green boughs and oak apples were worn and even flaunted about the streets by groups of persons on may twenty ninth the anniversary of charles II's restoration we read of riots in london of whigs of the loyal society going about with little warming-pans as emblems of their hostility to the stuart cause and being met by other mobs bearing white roses as badges of the stuart cause there was a continual battle of pamphleteers and of ballad writers. High Church and Ormond were shouted for and sung on one side of the political field, and the Pope and Perkin, that is to say, James Stuart, were as liberally denounced on the other. The scandals about King George's mistresses were freely alluded to in the Jacobite songs. The public of all parties seemed to have very cordially detested the ill favored ladies whom George had brought over from Hanover. The coarsest and grossest abuse was poured forth in ballads and in pamphlets against the king's favorites and courtiers, and was sung and shouted day and night in the public streets. Then and for long after, these public streets were battlegrounds on which Whigs and Tories, Hanoverians and Jacobites, fought out their quarrel. Men carried turnips in their hats in mockery of the German elector, who had threatened to make St. James's Park a turnip field, and were prepared to fight lustily for their bucolic emblem. Women fanned the strife, wore white roses for the king over the water, or sweet William in compliment to the immortal memory of William of Nassau. Sometimes even women were roughly treated. On one occasion we read of a serving girl who had made known the hiding place of a Jacobite, being attacked and nearly murdered by a jacobite mob and rescued by some whig gentlemen on another occasion a whig gentleman seeing a young lady in the street with a white rose in her bosom jumped from his coach tore out the disloyal blossom lashed the young lady with his whip and handed her over to a gang of whigs who would have stripped and scourged her but for the timely appearance of some jacobite gentry by whom she was carried home in safety. The flying post warns all he-jacobites and she-jacobites that if they are not careful, they will meet with more severe treatment than hitherto, and then alludes to some pretty severe treatment the poor she-jacobites had already received. To do the king and his family justice, they behaved with courage and composure through this long season of popular excitement they went everywhere as they pleased braving the dangers that certainly existed once a man named moore spat in the face of the princess of wales as she was going through the streets and he was scourged till he cried god bless king george in seventeen eighteen a youth named shepherd was hanged for planning king george's death this led a hanoverian fanatic named to suggest to the ministry that in return he should go to italy and kill king james his proffer of political retaliation only resulted in his being shut up as a madman at last the temper of the times and the frequent threats of assassination compelled the king to take more care of himself though he walked in kensington gardens every day the gardens were first searched and then carefully watched by soldiers When the rebellion was over, the government found they had a large number of prisoners on their hands, many of them of high rank. Several officers taken on the field had already been treated as deserters and shot after a trial by drumhead court-martial. Some of the prisoners of higher rank were brought into London in a manner like that of captives dragged along in an old Roman triumph, or like that of actual convicts taken to Tyburn. They were marched in procession from Highgate through London, each man sitting on a horse, having his arms tied with cords behind his back, the horses led by soldiers, with a military escort drumming and fifing a march of triumph. The men of noble rank were confined in the Tower. Others, many of them men of position, such as Mr. Thomas Forster, a Northumberland gentleman and member for his county, were thrust into Newgate. Whose horrors have been so well described in Scott's Rob Roy? The Reverend Robert Patton, who had been a conspicuous Jacobite, played a Titus Oates part in betraying his companions, and his name figures for King's evidence incessantly in the political trials. When he tired of treachery, he retired to the obscurity of his parish of Allendale in Northumberland, and gave the world his history of the rebellion in which he played so base a part. Among the chief prisoners were Lord Widrington, the Earl of Nithsdale, the Earl of Wintoon, the Earl of Carnweth, the Earl of Derwentwater, Viscount Kenmure, and Lord Nairn. These noblemen were impeached before the House of Lords, and all except Lord Wintoon pleaded guilty and prayed for the mercy of the King. Every effort was made to obtain a pardon for some of the condemned noblemen. Women of rank and beauty implored the King's mercy audacious attempts were made to bribe the ministers some eminent members of the whig party in the house of commons spoke up manfully and courageously in favour of a policy of mercy it is something pleasant to recollect that sir richard steele who had got into parliament again was conspicuous amongst these in the house of lords the friends of the condemned men succeeded in carrying despite the strong resistance of the government a motion for an address to the king beseeching him to extend mercy to the noblemen in prison walpole himself had spoken very harshly in the house of commons and condemned in unmeasured terms those of his party the whig party who could be so unworthy as without blushing to open their mouths in favor of rebels and parricides and he had carried an adjournment of the house of commons from the 22nd of february to the first of march in order to prevent any further petitions in favour of the rebel lords from being presented before the day fixed for their execution one of these petitions it is worth while recollecting was presented by the kindly hand and supported by the manly voice of sir richard steele the ministers returned a merely formal answer on the king's behalf to the address but they thought it wise to recommend a respite to be given to Lord Nairn, the Earl of Cairnwath, and Lord Widrington. And in order to get rid of any further appeals for mercy, they resolved that the execution of Lord Nithsdale, Lord Derwentwater, and Lord Kenmure should take place the very next day. Lord Nithsdale, however, was lucky enough to make his escape somewhat after the fashion in which Lavalette, at a much later date, contrived to get out of prison by the courage, devotion, and ingenuity of his wife. It is a curious fact that most of the contemporaries of Nithsdale, who tell the story of his escape, have represented his mother and not his wife as the woman who took his place in prison, and to whose energy and adroitness he owed his life. Smollett, is one of those who gives this version as if there were no doubt about it. Lord Stanhope, in the first edition of his History of England from the Peace of Utrecht to the Peace of Versailles, accepted the story on authorities which seemed so trustworthy. Lord Stanhope knew that many modern writers had described the escape as being effected by Lord Nithsdale's wife, but he assumed that the name of the wife was substituted in later tradition as being more romantic a letter from lady nithsdale herself written to her sister settles the whole question and of course lord stanhope immediately adopted this genuine version lady nithsdale tells how at first she endeavoured to present a petition to the king the first day she heard that the king was to go to the drawing-room she dressed herself in black as if in mourning and had a lady to accompany her because she did not know the king personally and might have mistaken some other man for him this lady and another came with her and the three remained in the room between the king's apartments and the drawing-room when george was passing through i threw myself at his feet and told him in french that i was the unfortunate countess of Nithsdale. perceiving that he wanted to go off without receiving my petition i caught hold of the skirt of his coat that he might stop and hear me he endeavoured to escape out of my hands but i kept such strong hold that he dragged me upon my knees from the middle of the room to the very door of the drawing-room one of the attendants of the king caught the unfortunate lady round the waist while another dragged the king's coat skirt out of her hands the petition which i had endeavoured to thrust into his pocket fell down in the scuffle and i almost fainted away through grief and disappointment Seldom, perhaps, in the history of royalty is there a description of so ungracious, unkingly, and even brutal reception of a petition presented by a distracted wife praying for a pardon to her husband. Then Lady Nithsdale determined to effect her husband's escape. She communicated her design to Mrs. Mills, and took another lady with her also. This lady was of tall and slender make, and she carried under her own riding-hood one that lady nithsdale had prepared for mrs mills as mrs mills was to lend hers to lord nithsdale so that in going out he might be taken for her mrs mills was also not only of the same height but nearly of the same size as my lord on their arrival at the tower mrs morgan was allowed to go in with lady nithsdale only one at a time could be introduced by the lady She left the riding-hood and other things behind her. Then Lady Nithsdale went downstairs to meet Mrs. Mills, who held her handkerchief to her face, as was very natural for a woman to do when she was going to bid her last farewell to a friend on the eve of his execution. I had indeed desired her to do it, that my lord might go out in the same manner. Mrs. Mills' eyebrows were a light color, and Lord Nithsdale's were dark and thick. So, says Lady Nithsdale, I had prepared some paint of the color of hers to disguise his with. I also bought an artificial headdress of the same color as hers, and I painted his face with white and his cheeks with rouge to hide his long beard, which he had not time to shave. All this provision I had before left in the tower, the poor guards whom my slight liberality the day before had endeared me to, let me go quietly with my company and were not so strictly on the watch as they usually had been and the more so as they were persuaded from what i had told them the day before that the prisoners would obtain their pardon then mrs mills was taken into the room with lord nithsdale and rather ostentatiously led by lady nithsdale past several sentinels and through a group of soldiers and of the guard's wives and daughters When she got into Lord Nithsdale's presence, she took off her riding-hood and put on that which Mrs. Morgan had brought for her. Then Lady Nithsdale dismissed her and took care that she should not go out weeping as she had come in, in order, of course, that Lord Nithsdale, when he went out, might the better pass for the lady who came in crying and afflicted. When Mrs. Mills was gone, Lady Nithsdale dressed up her husband in all my petticoats excepting one then she found that it was growing dark and was afraid that the light of the candles might betray her she therefore went out leading the disguised nobleman by the hand he holding his handkerchief pressed to his eyes as mrs mills had done when she came in the guards opened the doors and lady Nithsdale went downstairs with him as soon as he had cleared the door i made him walk before me for fear the sentinels should take notice of his walk Some friends received Lord Nithsdale and conducted him to a place of security. Lady Nithsdale went back to her husband's prison and, when I was in the room, I talked to him as if he had been really present and answered my own questions in my Lord's voice as nearly as I could imitate it. I walked up and down as if we were conversing together till I thought they had time enough to clear themselves of the guards. I then thought proper to make off also. I opened the door and stood half in it, that those in the outward chamber might hear what I said, but held it so close that they could not look in. I bid my lord a formal farewell for that night, and she added some words about the petition for his pardon and told him, I flattered myself that I should bring favourable news. Then she closed the door with some force behind her, and I said to the servant as I passed by, who was ignorant of the whole transaction, that he need not carry any candles to his master till my lord sent for him, as he desired to finish some prayers first. I went downstairs and called a coach, as there were several on the stand. I drove home to my lodgings. Soon after, Lady Nithsdale was taken to the place of security where her husband was remaining. They took refuge at the Venetian ambassadors two or three days after. Lord Nithsdale put on a livery, and went in the retinue of the ambassador to Dover. The ambassador, it should be said, knew nothing about the matter, but his coach and six went to Dover to meet his brother, and it was one of the servants of the embassy who acted in combination with Lord and Lady Nithsdale. A small vessel was hired at Dover, and Lord Nithsdale escaped to Calais, where his wife shortly after joined him. It is said by nearly all contemporary writers that King George, when he heard of the escape, took it very good humouredly and even expressed entire satisfaction with it lady nithsdale does not seem to have believed this story of george's generosity the statement made to her was that when the news was brought to the king he flew into an excess of passion and said he was betrayed for it could not have been done without some confederacy he instantly dispatched two persons to the tower to see that the other prisoners were well secured Lord Derwentwater and Lord Kenmure were executed on Tower Hill on the 24th of February. The young and gallant Derwentwater declared on the scaffold that he withdrew his plea of guilty and that he acknowledged no one but King James as his king. Kenmure, too, protested his repentance at having even formally pleaded guilty and declared that he died with a prayer for James Stuart. Lord Wintoun was not tried until the next month he was a poor and feeble creature hardly sound in his mind not perfect in his intellectuals a writer in a journal of the day observed of him he was found guilty but afterwards succeeded in making his escape from the tower like lord nithisdale he made his way to the continent and like lord nithisdale he died long after at rome humbler jacobites could escape too forster escaped from newgate through the aid of a clever servant, and got off to France, while the angry Whigs hinted at connivance on the part of persons in high places. The redoubted Brigadier McIntosh, who figures in descriptions of the time as a beetle-browed, grey-eyed man of sixty-speaking broad Scotch, succeeded in escaping, together with his son and seven others, in a rush of prisoners from the Newgate Press-yard. Mr. Charles Radcliffe had an even stranger escape, For one day, growing tired as well as he might of prison life, he simply walked out of Newgate under the eyes of his jailers in the easy disguise of a morning suit and brown tie-wig. Once, some Jacobite prisoners who were being sent to the West Indian plantations rose against the crew, seized the ship, steered it to France, and quietly settled down there. Later still, some prisoners got out even more easily. Brigadier McIntosh's brother was discharged from Newgate on his own prayer and on showing that he was very old and altogether friendless. Immediately after the execution of the rebel nobleman, the ministry set to work to take some steps which might render political intrigue and conspiracy less dangerous in the future. One idea, which especially commended itself to the statesmen of that time, was to make the laws more rigorous against Roman Catholics law and popular feeling were already strongly set against the catholics on the death of queen anne officers in the army when informing their companies of the accession of the elector of hanover carried their loyal and religious enthusiasm so far as to call upon any of their hearers who might be catholics to fall forthwith out of the ranks the writers who supported the hanoverian succession and were in the service of the whig ministry were not ashamed to declare that the ceremony of the paternoster would infallibly cure a stranger of the spleen, and that any man in his senses would find excellent comedy in the recital of an Ave Mary. How common it is, says the writer of The Patriot, to find a wretch of this persuasion to be deluded to such a degree that he shall imagine himself engaged in the solemnity of devotion, while in reality he is exceeding the fopperies of a jack-pudding. So great was the distrust of Catholics that it was often the practice to seize upon the horses of Catholic gentlemen in order to impede them in the risings which they were always supposed to be meditating. But the condition of the Catholics in England was not bad enough to content the ministry. An act was passed, in fact what would be now called rushed through Parliament, to strengthen the Protestant interest in Great Britain by making more severe, THE LAWS NOW IN BEING AGAINST PAPISTS, AND BY PROVIDING A MORE EFFECTIVE AND EXEMPLARY PUNISHMENT FOR PERSONS WHO, BEING PAPISTS, SHOULD VENTURE TO ENLIST IN THE SERVICE OF HIS MAJESTY. THE SPIRIT OF POLITICAL FREEDOM AS WE NOW UNDERSTAND IT HAD NOT YET EVEN BEGUN TO GLIMMER UPON THE COUNSELS OF STATESMEN. THE IDEA HAD NOT YET ARISEN IN THE MINDS OF ENGLISHMEN, EVEN OF MEN AS ABLE AS Walpole that liberty meant anything more than liberty for the expression of one's own opinions and for the carrying into action of one's own policy. Those who were in power immediately made it their business to strengthen their own hands, and to prevent, as far as possible, the growth of opinions, the expression of ideas, unfavorable to themselves. Yet, at such a time, there were not wanting advocates of the administration to write that it was— Indeed, the peculiar happiness and glory of an Englishman that he must first quit these kingdoms before he can experimentally know the want of public liberty, most people even still read history by the light of ideas which prevailed up to the close of George I's reign. We are all ready enough to admit that in our time, it would not be a free system which suppressed or prevented the expression of other men's opinions. Or which attached any manner of penal consequences to the profession of one creed or the adhesion to one party. But most of us are nevertheless ready enough to describe one period of English history, the reign perhaps of one sovereign, as a period of religious liberty, and another season or reign as a time when liberty was suppressed. Some Englishmen talk with enthusiasm of the spirit of Elizabeth's reign, or the spirit of the reign of William III and condemn in unmeasured terms the spirit which influenced james the second and which would no doubt have influenced james the second's son if he had come to the throne but any one who will put aside for the moment his own particular opinions will see that in both cases the guiding principle was exactly the same never were there greater acts of political and religious intolerance committed than during the reign of elizabeth and during the reign of william the third the truth is that the modern idea of constitutional and political liberty did not exist among english statesmen even so recently as the reign of william the third at the period with which we are now dealing it would not have occurred to any statesman that there could be a wiser course to take than to follow up the suppression of the insurrection of seventeen fifteen by making more stringent than ever the laws already in existence against the religion to which most of the rebels belonged the government made another change of a different kind and for which there was better political justification they passed a measure altering the period of the duration of parliaments at this time the limit of the existence of a parliament was three years an act was passed in 1641 directing that parliament should meet once at least in every three years this act was repealed in 1664 another and a different kind of triennial parliament bill passed in 1694 this act declared that no parliament should last for a longer period than three years but the system of short parliaments had not apparently been found to work with much satisfaction The impression that a House of Commons with so limited a period of life before it would be more anxious to conciliate the confidence and respect of the constituencies had not been justified in practice. Indeed, the constituencies themselves at that time were not sufficiently awake to the meaning and the value of parliamentary representation to think of keeping any effective control over those whom they sent to speak for them in Parliament. Bribery and corruption were as rife and as extravagant under the triennial system as ever they had been before, or as they ever were since. But no doubt the immediate object of repealing the triennial bill was to obtain a better chance for the new condition of things by giving it a certain time to work in security. If the new dynasty was to have any chance of success at all, it was necessary that ministers should not have to come almost immediately before the country again shippen in the commons and atterbury in the lords were among the most strenuous opponents of the new measure both staunch jacobites they had everything to gain just then by frequent appeals to the country shippen urged that it was unconstitutional in a parliament elected for three years to elect itself for seven years without an appeal to the constituencies steele defended the bill on the ground that all the mischiefs which, which could be brought under the septennial act could be perpetuated under the triennial, but that the good which might be compassed under the septennial could not be hoped for under the triennial. Not a few persons in both houses seemed to be of one mind with the bewildered Bishop of London, who declared that he did not know which way to vote, for he was confounded between dangers and inconveniences on one side and destruction on the other. It is not out of place to mention here that when a bill was unsuccessfully brought in nearly twenty years after for the repeal of the septennial act, many of those who had voted in favor of parliaments of seven years in 1716 voted the other way, while opponents in 1716 were turned into allies in 1734. The system of short parliaments has ardent admirers in our own day annual parliaments formed one of the points of the people's charter. Many who could not accept the chartist idea of annual parliaments would still regard as one of the articles of the true creed of liberalism the principle of the triennial parliament. But even if that creed were true in the politics of the present day, it would not have been true in the early days of King George. One of the great constitutional changes which the times were then making and which Walpole welcomed and helped to carry out, was the change which gave to the House of Commons the real ruling power in the Constitution. No representative chamber could then have held its own against the House of Lords, or the Court, or the Court and the House of Lords combined, if it had been subject to the necessity of frequent re-elections. Short parliaments have even in our own days been made in Europe the most effective weapons of despotic power. No test more trying can be found for a party of men sincerely anxious to maintain constitutional rights at a season of danger than to subject them to frequent and close electoral struggles. Much more important in the historical and constitutional sense was it at the opening of King George's reign that the house of commons should be strengthened than that any particular party should have unlimited opportunities of trying its chances at a general election it mattered little when once the position of the representative body had been made secure whether george or james sat on the throne with the representative body an inconsiderable factor in the state system brunswick would soon have been as unconstitutional as stuart one of the last acts of the life of Lord Somers was to express to Lord Townshend his approval of the principle of the Septennial Bill. He did not live to see it actually passed into law. He was but sixty six years old at the time of his death. Disease and not age had weakened his fine intellect and had kept him for many years from playing any important part in the affairs of the state. The day when Somers died, was the very day when the septennial bill passed its third reading in the house of commons it had come down from the house of lords and had to go back to that house in consequence of some alterations made in the commons Somers lived just long enough to be assured of its safety born in sixteen fifty the son of a worcester attorney he had won for himself the proudest honors of the law and had written his name high up in the roll of english statesmen. Steele wrote of him that he was as much admired for his universal knowledge of men and things as for his eloquence, courage, and integrity in the exerting of such extraordinary talents. The spectator, in dedicating its earliest papers to him, spoke of him as one who brought into the service of his sovereign the arts and policies of ancient Greece and Rome, and praised him for a certain dignity in himself, which made him appear as great in private life as in the most important offices he had borne. It was in allusion to Summers, indeed, that Swift said Bolingbroke wanted for success a small infusion of the aldermen. This was a sneer at Summers, as well as a sort of rebuke to Bolingbroke. If the small infusion of the Alderman was another term for order and method in public business, then it may be freely admitted by his greatest admirers that Summers had more of the alderman in his nature than Bolingbroke perhaps the only thing except great capacity which he had in common with bolingbroke was an ungoverned admiration of the charms of women his fame was first established by the ability with which he conducted his part of the defence of the seven bishops in james ii's reign his consistent devotion to the whig party and his just and almost prescient appreciation of the true principles of that party set him in sharp contrast to other statesmen of the time, to men like Marlborough and Shrewsbury and Bolingbroke. His is a noble figure, even in its decay, and the historian of such a time parts from him with regret, feeling that the average of public manhood and virtue is lowered when Summers is gone. While Jacobites were lingering in prison and dying on Tower Hill, Lady Mary Wortley Montague was writing from abroad, imperishable letters to her friends we may turn away from politics for a moment to observe her and her career mr wortley montague had been appointed ambassador to constantinople and set out for his post accompanied by the witty and beautiful wife for whom he cared so little ever since he first met her and presented her with a copy of quintus curtius in honour of her latinity and some original verses of his own in earnest of his admiration he had been an exacting impatient lover after his marriage he seems to have grown absolutely indifferent to her leaving her alone for months together while he remained in town and pleading as his excuse his parliamentary duties she who on the contrary had made no unreasonable display of affection for the lover appears to have become deeply attached to the husband and to have been bitterly pained by his careless indifference, an indifference which at last, and it would appear, most unwillingly, she learned to return. When this life had been lived for a year or two, Queen Anne died, and with Walpole's accession to power, Mr. Wortley got office, and brought his beautiful wife up from Yorkshire to be the wonder and admiration of the English court and the Hanoverian monarch. For two bright years, lady mary shone like a star in the brilliant constellation of women of wits of politicians and men of letters who thronged st james's palace and peopled st james's parish then came the constantinople embassy lady mary had always a longing for foreign travel and now that her desires were gratified she enjoyed herself with all the delight of a child and all the intelligence of a gifted woman travel was a rare pleasure for women then A young English gentleman made the grand tour and brought back, if he were foolish, nothing better than a few receipts for strange dishes and some newer notions of vice than he had set out with. If he were wise, he became possessed of the tongues and bore home spoils of voyage in the shape of Titians and Correggios and Raphaels, genuine or the reverse, to stock a picture gallery in the family mansion but women very seldom travelled much in those days certainly no man or woman could then write of travels as mary wortley montague could and did we may well imagine the delight with which mistress Scarrot and lady rich and the countess of bristol languid lord harvey's mother in adoring mr pope received these marvellous letters which were destined to rank with the epistles of the younger pliny and of madame de Sivigny mr pope whose translation of the odyssey had not yet made its appearance may well have thought that ulysses himself had not seen men in cities to greater advantage than the beautiful wanderer whom he was destined first to love and then to hate as we read her letters we seem to live with her in the great gay gloomy life of vienna to hear once more the foolish squabbles of Ratisbon society as to who should and should not be styled excellency and to smile at the loyal crowds of english thronging the wretched inns of hanover but the fidelity of her descriptions may best be judged from her accounts of life in constantinople the vienna of to-day is very different from the ill-built high-storied city of maria theresa but the condition of constantinople has scarcely changed with the century and a half that has gone by since lady mary was english ambassadress there she seems indeed to have seen the heads upon the famous monument of bronze-twisted serpents in the hippodrome. And perhaps she did, for Spahn and Wheeler's sketch of it in 1675 gives it with the triple head still perfect, though these serpent heads and all traces of them have long since disappeared. In Constantinople, Lady Mary first became acquainted with that principle of inoculation for the smallpox, which she so enthusiastically advocated, which she introduced into England in spite of so much hostility and disfavor, and which now, accepted by almost all the civilized world, is still wrangled fiercely over in England. Perhaps we may anticipate by some half-century to tell of Lady Mary's further career. She came back to London again, and shone as brilliantly as before, and was made love to by Pope, and laughed at her lover, and savagely scourged by him in return with whips of stinging and shameful satire. One can understand better the story of the daughters of Lycambes, hanging themselves under the pain of the iambics of Archilochus, when one reads the merciless cruelty with which the great English satirist treated the woman he had loved. When Lady Mary grew old, she went abroad to live, without any opposition on her husband's part. They parted with mutual indifference and mutual esteem. She lived for many years in Italy, chiefly in Venice. Then she came back to London for a short time to live in lodgings off Hanover Square and be the curiosity of the town, and then she died. Lady Mary always had a dread of growing old, and she grew old and ill-favoured, as Horace Walpole was spiteful enough to put on record. When Pope was laughed at by the beauty he might have said to her in the words that clarendon used to the fair castlemaine woman you will grow old and have felt that in those words he had almost repaid the bitterness of her scorn horace walpole indeed avenged the offended poet long dead and famous when he wrote thus of lady mary her dress her avarice and her impudence must amaze any one that never heard her name she wears a foul mob that does not cover her greasy black locks that hang loose never combed or curled an old magazine blue wrapper that gapes open and discovers a canvas petticoat her face partly covered with white paint which for cheapness she has bought so coarse that you would not use it to wash a chimney such is one of the latest portraits of the woman who had been a poet's idol and the cherished beauty of a court lady mary who had outlived her husband left an exemplary daughter who married lord bute and a most unexemplary son to whom she bequeathed one guinea and who spent the greater part of his life drifting about the east and acquiring all kinds of strange and useless knowledge end of section 10 recording by pamela nagami